Welcome to the latest edition of the Moses and Methuselah podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, and with me today, as in every edition of these podcasts, is my friend and professional sparring partner, the author and fund manager, Peter Simon. In this series of 10 podcasts, we will be discussing a number of the big themes that are currently preoccupying the financial markets, in which we have both been professionally involved for the best part of four decades. A tour of duty that prompted us to choose, very much tongue-in-cheek, the title of this series. Are we wise or simply old and set in our ways? We leave you to decide. Last time we spoke, Peter, we talked about the TV series called Civilization, the book that came from it by uh, Kenneth Clark. Uh, and we talked about some of the miraculous achievements that uh, humanity has achieved in the world of arts. This week, we are moving on and talking about a book that you've suggested, uh, Shrunken World by Otto von Habsburg. And I guess this is, before we sort of start, I, I would guess to say there's a counterpoint to last week in the sense this is a book really about some of the ways in which um, mankind has also failed to achieve all the things it might have achieved uh, uh, in the world in the last century. And But hopefully we'll learn some of the lessons for the next. Uh, so this book is by Otto von Habsburg. We might as well start by saying, well, who was Otto von Habsburg? Hello, Jonathan. It's very nice to be back online and to have the opportunity to discuss another book. This book that we're discussing by Otto von Habsburg is called, it was written in German, and it's called Unsere Welt ist klein geworden by Amalthea Publishers in Munich, which means Our Shrunken World. There is an English translation, but it's not available, but it exists. So you legitimately ask who was Otto von Habsburg, he was born in 1912 as the eldest son of the last reigning emperor of Austria-Hungary, Charles I, whose reign was very short. It was only from 1916, so in the middle of the First World War, until 1918, when he was deposed and banished into exile. And his eldest son, Otto von Habsburg, took on the mantle of head of the family, but then he became much more in his long and distinguished career, and was probably the most distinguished of all the Habsburg family um, heads, I would say. Right, but he had the misfortune not to have, uh, sorry, not to have an empire to, to run anyway. Uh, I'm not sure whether that was a fortune or a misfortune, but anyway, he certainly didn't have that opportunity. What was his attitude to life then? We perhaps might start with that. I mean, he's, obviously his family had suffered this reverse, and um, uh, what, what was his life like? in exile at the beginning, um, and then he, he grew up, and then finally, later on, he was always very interested in politics. He had a lot of influence on the world leaders. He knew all the leaders, from the American president to President de Gaulle and all the other players. The only world leader who wanted to see him desperately, and he refused to be met by him, was Adolf Hitler, and as a result, Adolf Hitler pronounced a death sentence on him and all his family through a dead or alive poster. But Otto von Habsburg was very true to his principles and never met Adolf Hitler, although he was always happy and willing to have any kind of political discussion with any leader. But there he drew a line. He then went on to become a member of the European Parliament and then a president of the European Parliament. 
um, until he retired. And one little anecdote, Jonathan, which I'm sure you'll find very amusing, was this. When I met with Otto von Habsburg some years ago, and I asked him what were the most poignant occasions in the European Parliament in Strasbourg, he said when Pope John Paul II came to address the Parliament, it so happened that the Reverend Ian Paisley, who was also a member of the European Parliament, got up and started heckling the Pope. And as president, Otto von Habsburg found this intolerable. And he told me, so I decided to have him ejected from the Parliament chamber. And so I asked him, I said, well, how did you do that, sir? Did you get the security men to ask him to leave? And he said, not at all. I got up and I got my vice president with me. We went down to the microphone where Ian Paisley was standing and ranting. The vice president took him on the right arm. I took him on the left arm. We dragged him to the front door, opened the front door and threw him out of the chamber. I thought that was an amusing, amusing part. Apart from that, he wrote many books. He was a prolific author. And this book here is the last book that he wrote. Okay, so we can see that as a, some kind of using all his experience and uh, perspective that he gained over the years to that point. I imagine by then he'd, he'd renounced his claim to the title. I mean, the, the Habsburgs are no longer seeking to uh, restore the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which lasted for uh, some many years. The Austro-Hungarian Empire itself didn't last for much more than 100 years, but the Holy Roman Empire before that lasted for hundreds and hundreds of years. Obviously, the Habsburg family was expropriated to a large extent by the Austrian government, which transformed the monarchy into a republic. But Otto von Habsburg, in order to be allowed to go back into the country, all the Habsburgs were banished from entering Austria. He renounced any claims for himself and his descendants to the Austrian imperial throne. So that is no longer a topic uh, for today's discussions. Indeed. So let's move on then and talk about what the book is about. English translation, Our Shrunken World, uh, might give us a clue. What is the main message of the book? The main message of the book is that in today's world, everything hangs together. And I think that today, like in 2021, it's, it is even more valid than it was when this book was written, which was about uh, 18 or 19 years ago when globalization not only affected economics and the economy, but also politics. His main message in this book, which I found fascinating and so obvious, is that in order to have a valid geopolitical discussion in any corner of the world, history and geography must underpin all these discussions. In other words, if you and I talk about, let's say, Central Europe, for example, it's much easier if we have before us a map, not only a map today, but a map of what the region looked like 50, 100 or 200 years ago. And his message is that most politicians today are pretty ignorant of history and also very ignorant of geography, let alone the link between them. Yes, I think I, I, from what I've read of the book, and I have read uh, most of it in English, the lesson appears to be very clear that we are lacking, I suppose, what in the past we would have said were 
you know, genuine international statesmen who were actually able to think about the world in, as you say, a, a kind of holistic way and to take into account all these factors that uh, have influenced people locally. I mean, we could take some examples, I guess. Uh, you mentioned uh, uh, Central Europe, but I mean, the Balkans would be a good case or perhaps uh, Iraq would be another example where politicians, to their great shame and discredit, uh, have never really understood how those regions have developed historically and the various uh, religious and so on factors which uh, affect them um, and therefore make a series of policy mistakes. I mean, is that is that one of the main messages? It's completely right what you say, especially when the politicians are from other areas and when they come in and they create what I call artificial uh, states, artificial countries. There are plenty of examples of those. Iraq is an example. Yugoslavia is an example. Syria is an example, and so on. I think that what was very important in 2004 in the European Union was the advent of the 10 new EU member states. And I think that that made a very big difference to the security or the potential security and the prosperity, not only of those 10 new member states, but also for the European Union as a whole and by extension for the world. It's no coincidence that the 10 new EU states in 2004, they run from the north of Europe all the way to the south of Europe and they constitute what used to be just east of the Iron Curtain. And that was very much viewed by Russia as a sort of in-my-face or in-your-face development by the European Union. But it was as important then as it remains now. We'll come back to the artificial states in a, in a moment. Okay, so the decision to admit these uh, extra countries into the EU from that area, that's obviously been a very important uh, development. But has it also not created some problems along the way, and not least in terms of this long-standing uh, Russian sense of injustice and uh, you know how the world is all against them and so on? You have to start from the belief that they, the Russians are indeed a serious threat to uh, all those countries, does one not? One did, one does, and one will. And that's why it was so important. And it was kicking and screaming, by the way, that the EU admitted uh, these countries, um, the Baltic countries, the Central European countries, and then all the way down to Slovenia and now Croatia. I think that the Russians will remain a threat. And here again, you need a map to understand this, but they remain a, a threat so long as they continue to have military presence, a military presence in what is called Kaliningrad, which is up on the North Sea, which is an exclave between Poland and Lithuania. Uh, that's in the north. And uh, a part of Moldova, which is called Transnistria, which is down in the south near the Black Sea, which is not necessarily... Um, an area that everyone knows a lot about. But it is, they are two corners of Europe that the Russians have always wished to dominate for geopolitical reasons. And all you need to do is look at the map to understand why. 
And so long as the Russians continue to have a military presence in these two areas, they will definitely be a threat. They'll be a threat in the north to the Baltic states, and they'll be a threat in the south to the Balkan states, which has always been a hot spot in southeast Europe, for example. So the question, of course, is, I mean, the reason that the Russians have their their foothold in these two areas is is all to do with the uh, the post-war settlement, uh, going back to Yalta and so on. And the Russians obviously wanted access to, uh, you know, they get their their navies out into the uh, into the Mediterranean and into the North Sea. Um, and so the question, I guess, is, well, okay, but what can we do about it? I mean, what was uh, what was uh, uh, Otto von Habsburg's solution to this problem? Obviously, his solution to the problem was that NATO continues to be important. But he was not, if you like, he wasn't deaf by any means to the discussion going on about whether the security of Europe needs to be assured by NATO or needs to be assured by a European defense force, which eventually would become a European army. But it is very much a question of security. As you rightly say, Jonathan, in the north, they wanted to have access to the North Sea. And in the south, they wanted to have access to the Mediterranean, especially the warm water ports. Um, And they've had a certain amount of success in that respect. For example, today in the North Sea, they're constantly buzzing around with their vessels and their ships and their navy. And of course, in the in the south, it's a completely different story. They've got access to two warm water ports in Syria, and they're omnipresent, directly or indirectly, into into those parts of southeastern Europe, which are strategically important for them. But what you say is quite right. They want to be able to encircle Europe, for either from the north or from the south or from both, for geostrategic reasons, and that's never changed. Right. And they have the same problem, of course, on, on the Asian front as well. And I think if you, I guess, if I don't, don't want to take the Russians' point of view here, but they've always been nervous about the fact that they're going to be encircled by the Chinese on one side and the Europeans on the other. And that's an issue. But so I don't think it's going to go away. I'm just more interested in what, what Otto von Habsburg thought. I mean, he was in favour of the European army. He thought that the European Union should be taking on a greater role insecurity, they should be paying more into NATO and so on. Would he would he have supported those kind of arguments, which are still very live? Obviously, uh, you know, we've had the episode with Crimea as well recently, where, you know, the Europe uh, failed to do anything uh, of any great uh, significance to stop the Russians taking over, taking Crimea back. What do you think, where would he stand today if he was alive? He would tell us that it is unnatural and wrong for, let's say, 400 million Americans to protect 400 million Europeans from 500 million Russians. That is a situation which is untenable. And therefore, the European Union must be able to punch at and above its weight. It's a very big economic block. It should become an equally big political block and can be backed up by an equally strong defense block. In those days, in, in other words, in the days when, when Otto von Habsburg was writing this book and, and maybe in the years before, there was probably slightly less of an urgency with regard to the discussion about whether there should be 
a European army. And even today, there are very few proponents of a European army. Yes, they talk about a defense force, stuff like that. But there are all sorts of reasons put forward why this won't work. And of course, when the British were part of the European Union, they were blocking any attempts to create uh, a European army. Now, whether that's going to change going forward, I don't know. We would have to look and see um, and see whether there are any real proper European statesmen in the European Union to confront the threat of Russia, which never seems to go away. It certainly doesn't. And that then leads us on to some other serious issues, which I guess are kind of part of this broader problem. I mean, for example, I know he writes in the book about uh, Turkey, for example. Turkey is interesting. Obviously, you can take a couple of views about Turkey. You can either think that they are becoming a rather authoritarian state, and that's a, a, a concern to some, uh, or you can see them as a strategic bulwark in the uh, in the Mediterranean, which we should be uh, friendly with. So what was his stance on Turkey? I mean, it is an important country, and we seem to have rather ambivalent views about it. If I can just quote something from his book, he writes, Turkey does not fit into the form of a European Union in the same way as a Western state. Europe is a continent that needs to be judged by its own criteria. As a result, cooperation between the European Union and Turkey must find its own form. And I think that must find its own form is very important because if you allowed Turkey to become a fully-fledged member of the European Union, given the size of its population and given the constellation of the EU institutions, you could find that pretty soon Turkey would not only be a fully-fledged member, but would also have a very, very big voting influence because of the size of its population. And therefore, one has to find a different arrangement with Turkey which would allow it to fulfill its own particular role. And, you know, Churchill said that the Mediterranean is the soft underbelly of Europe on account of Russia, of course. And given that the region has, if you like, three, when I talk about the region, I mean the Mediterranean region, has essentially three powers. It has the EU, it has Turkey, that's, that looks after the so-called Mashrek. And then it has Morocco, which is the most serious of the Maghrebian states. And so these three need to work together. But it doesn't mean that you've got to take Turkey or Morocco as fully-fledged members of the European Union. It has to be a different arrangement in order to remove the soft underbelly, if you like, the soft underbelly status of Europe and protect the whole of the Mediterranean against Russian incursions. Yes, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I've got a couple of thoughts about that. I mean, if we go back to Greek, you know, Greek Roman times, you know, the Mediterranean was regarded as the centre of the political world and, and civilization as it then was, to use that phrase again. And everything was seen from a Mediterranean perspective. But now we, Otto von Habsburg is suggesting we should be thinking about Europe on a continental basis rather than on uh, on that basis. And maybe that's just a result of history, but it's an interesting kind of development. It's it's sort of taken uh, the world in a different direction, if you like. Uh, but the other point about Turkey, if I just mentioned that, I think is interesting, which I think he, 
Uh, I'm not quite clear exactly what his view about the invasion of Iraq was, but I suspect he uh, thought it was full of strategic errors and maybe tactical errors as well. And one of them might have been actually the way in which the Americans chose to treat the Turks in that uh, in that uh, conflict and actually sort of kept them out of the whole process when, in fact, uh, according to what you've just said, and I rather agree with it, they should have been some you know, integral part of the solution, as they have to be, in fact. They have to be an integral part of the solution because they are the regional power. They always were. And they should be. Whether this is becoming more difficult today, given the current president of Turkey becoming more and more extreme, I don't know. But I think what Otto von Habsburg was criticizing with regard to the invasion of Iraq by the Americans and their allies was that the result of that was the if you like, the creation of a vacuum, of a void, which was exacerbated by the abolition of the Iraqi army. And of course, whenever there's a void, it is filled by someone. And that someone or something, in the case of Iraq, wasn't a positive influence. You can say what you want about Saddam Hussein and his human rights record, but he did keep the peace, maybe the human rights record is not a price worth paying for the peace. But after he was removed, there was this vacuum created. And of course, a whole lot of terrorists moved to fill the vacuum. And I include, um, for example, Iran, which today runs Iraq, but also the ISIS Islamic State and all the chaotic things that you see today, the persecutions that take place, the bloodshed, of which you don't read as much as you used to. But the bottom line of all this is that if you create an artificial state, which Iraq was, sooner or later, sooner or later, nature takes it back. And when nature takes it back, it's usually accompanied by horrible bloodshed and killings. Indeed. And that, of course, is, I think, underscores this central dilemma which we have. We, because for better or worse, this is what we've got. This is the world that was bequeathed to us in 1918 and 1945. And a lot of countries are responsible for that, for, for drawing straight boundaries, you know, fairly arbitrarily in some cases, and certainly throwing different kind of religious mixes into it, which is always dangerous and tribal differences as well. And then, of course, there always are quite a lot of bad people around. And so the question comes back to, well, what can we do about it? You know, if you don't like President Erdogan, what do we, how do we deal with that? If we don't like um, the Chinese regime in, in Hong Kong, what do we do about it? And if we don't like what's going on in Iraq, what do we do about that? Obviously, the invasion has not been a great success, but uh, it does come up all the time against the limits of what is actually feasible. And so I think the question I I would ask about this book is, Obviously, it's full of insights about geopolitical factors. Um, but I wonder, and he, he, he seems to be yearning for a kind of, well, for, for great men, basically, to come along and to have this uh, panoptic view of the world and to have the skills to do something about it. Would that be a fair comment? That's absolutely right on the button. He's yearning for statespeople to come back. And the statespeople that he knew at the time, whether it's de Gaulle or Adenauer or a number of other ones, they're all largely lacking today. So what he's bemoaning is the absence of these strong state people, because when you say, what can we do about China and what can we do about Russia and what can we do about President Erdogan, the key word is we. And Otto von Habsburg's 
perspective was a European perspective in the first instance. And there he would say what we need in Europe is, is, is strong, uh, strong statesmen to stand up, to speak so that all the European member states can speak with one voice through these states people. And a punch, if anything, above their weight. What I found very interesting in this book is that he makes a number of predictions, whether it's to do with Ukraine, whether it's to do with Hong Kong, and whether it's to do with what's going on in the South China Seas. And these predictions made almost 20 years ago, they all happened exactly as he predicted. If you go further back to another book he wrote, he wrote many books, but to a book he wrote back in the 1980s, I think it was, about Yugoslavia. He called Yugoslavia a powder keg waiting to explode. And what he predicted with regard to Yugoslavia was exactly what happened. What he predicted with regard to Ukraine was exactly what happened when the Russians invaded Crimea. What he predicted in this book, again, with regard to the South China Sea and the so-called Spratly Islands, for example, is exactly what happened. You read the chapter on the Spratly Islands, and then you look up and look, see what's happening today. It's exactly that. And Hong Kong is more or less the same thing. That struck me a lot in this book. Yes, absolutely. And it struck me too. I think he, obviously he was uh, very acute in, in that respect. Uh, I, and I, I think they're quite illuminating some of the chapters about some of these issues. Um, I guess one question I might just ask in passing, and I don't know how you might answer this. It's interesting coming from his own personal background. I mean, do you think he actually was, uh, what was his attitude towards democracy? Because, I mean, there are people who argue that one of the reasons why we have uh, difficulties in creating statesmen is that we have electorates who themselves are not particularly, uh, shall we say, plugged into the realities of geopolitics. Uh, they they elect people for various reasons, um, but they don't necessarily uh, elect the people who can who can find the solutions. So, and he was obviously an active member in the European Parliament. So, to that extent, it obviously was. What was his thoughts about democracy? He was a profound democrat. He started off with the, and that's also written in his book, with a very unusual approach to voting rights. So, for example, he says, "Why should a person?" who reaches the age of 18 or whatever it is, uh, be allowed to vote only then? Why should younger children or even babies not have the right to vote? If, if the young children have the right to vote, but that that right to vote was exercised through their parents, then their parents would be taking account of the interests of their children. And vote on a longer term basis rather than excluding a whole swathe of the population, namely the younger ones, who will be most affected by the outcome of democracy and of the votes. That I found a very interesting approach, very unusual. I haven't seen it anywhere else. In right. terms of democracy, he, he's a profound Democrat, for example, with regard to the right of people to, to decide on their own destiny. So, for example, you cannot subjugate the Slovaks into an artificial state called Czechoslovakia. You've got to let the people pronounce on who they want to be part of. 
if he were around today, which unfortunately he's not, I would ask him what does he think, for example, about Scottish independence, or what does he think about Catalan independence? But I suspect that he would say that people have the right to belong where they want. And they certainly do. Of course they do. And that's a fundamental principle which we follow. But there's another principle, which is that we don't, in practical terms, we don't go around changing boundaries uh, uh, arbitrarily. Um, and that's, of course, what we always run up against. And the EU has this problem with Scotland, for example, that it doesn't want to uh, encourage... I'm sure it would love the Scots to be a member of the EU, but they don't want to encourage Scotland to, to seek independence because that would obviously have implications for other founder members, such as Spain and so on. So, yeah, it's an interesting argument. I, I, and I've I noted his point about um, voting powers. I think that's an interesting idea. Um, I think it's also worth talking about what his attitude to the United States was, because there has always been a lot of tension between the US uh, and Europe in recent years over a number of different issues. We've mentioned some of them, NATO, Ukraine, and so on, uh, and indeed the Iraqi war. What was his view of uh, of the US? An interesting view indeed, because the difference of approach between, on the one hand, the US, and on the other hand, Europe, was that the US and the founding fathers, they were Puritans whose pronouncements were based on Calvinist teachings, which in turn was based on, well, puritanical thinking plus a commercial approach. Whereas if you take the equivalent attitude by the Europeans of the time, I'm talking about the time now, at that time, when the founding fathers moved over to the US, the main power in Europe was, was Spain. And of course, the Spanish attitude was based on Christianity and the Judeo-Christian approach uh, rather than the commercial and puritanical approach uh, by the Americans and by extension or sourced from the British. And so what he described was, he called it a clash of cultures. So you have the two cultures, you have the European culture and you have the American culture. And this very often produced a clash, which was often misinterpreted by a lot of observers as American bullying. And the American bullying was based on the belief that the Americans always think or thought that unless everyone else falls into line with their way of doing things, uh, unless they do that, they will, considered, they will be considered not as friends and allies, but as foes. And in many ways, he's right. He's right. I mean, you could see the attitude of former President Trump. Um, we'll see whether this President Biden will change that. But he, he called it, interestingly, in this book, he calls it a clash of cultures. Would you agree with that uh, in a way, Jonathan? I think I would, yes, absolutely. In fact, I noted down a couple of passages which he wrote about the Americans, and I think he was spot on. I'm just quoting here, one of the greatest weaknesses in American politics to this day has been to think of the country as the very best and that the whole of hum humanity should strive to equal Americans. And and he, he mentions that point apropos of the, the, you know, the Pilgrim Fathers and the, the puritanical uh, background, if you like. Uh, and then again, he says, on the other hand, the truth is that the United States are hardly the dark power that certain left-wing ideologues like to talk about. Uh, by their nature, Americans are good people ready to help but they've lived on the world's island for too long not to develop a certain inner distance 
to the realities of the rest of human humankind. I think that's again very, very fair fair comment. I think it sums up the kind of the uh, the American attitude quite well. Uh, and of course, in certain cases, it would help if the Americans had looked at the map, as he suggests. Uh, they might have done some things differently. But then, you know, the Europeans, as you as we've said before, in the Balkans, for example, have not done particularly better. I would say. Uh, in terms of managing that, so it does apply to all nations, I think. And but I think that, to me, that seemed to me very fair comments about the Americans. There, I mean, they're basically good guys, but they have a funny way of showing it in many ways. Yes, you're quite right. <clears throat> Which of course shows that the author in this book, he always tries to put a positive slant on things, even though he's very strict in his criticism and very poignant and. <laughs> And he's absolutely right in, in most of these things that he says, but he does put a positive slant on it. He he approaches it with a positive attitude rather than with a negative attitude. And what you say is absolutely, totally right, that the Europeans are just as much to blame as anyone else when it comes to the uh, inability to solve their own problems, especially in their own backyard. And you mentioned the Balkans and the former Yugoslavia. And there you had different pressures from different corners. You had the British who wanted to consider Yugoslavia as sort of ersatz colony, as the author describes it. Um, and then you had the Central Europeans who had much more experience in that region and who knew that Yugoslavia was uh, an artificial state which was bound to explode sooner or later, which it did with all the consequences that we know. So I think in sum and in conclusion to this discussion, um, we're all as good as each other or we're all as bad as each other, but we need to work together. And so when you finished reading that book, you probably have the, in your lasting impression is first of all, that you've read a lot of things that you don't read elsewhere. Secondly, that the author had a lot of sources that any other author would not have access to, and that presumably because he was the president of the European Parliament and a very revered person as a historian, as a politician. And so one does finish this book thinking a lot of things and having learned a lot. So I must say, <laughs> by way of conclusion, I uh, read that book for the first time all those years ago, but I read the book several times since, and I refreshed my memory very recently in, in advance of today's discussions, and I'm very glad I did, Jonathan. Yes, and I think I would just comment on that, having not read it before. I would comment that when last week we said that, uh, well, for, certainly as far as I was concerned, I think for many other people, the the power of civilization was it opened our eyes to you know some of the glories of of art that have been created and in the same way this book opens our eyes to some of the geopolitical issues that we all should be thinking about and uh, i'm very glad that uh, it does so and in the end at the end of the book he touches very much upon what you and i discussed last time with regard to civilization by kenneth clark and he mentions the difference between the good old days when constructions were erected for the greater glory of God in the West, as opposed to the hideous constructions that were built during the communist days, which were particularly drab and devoid of any kind of 
subtle message. And when I reread that, it reminded me of our discussions that we had regarding the civilization, which was the book that influenced you very greatly. So it all comes together in the end. Indeed. And the final quote that I wrote down anyway, which I thought was interesting, is notwithstanding this sort of sense of uh, optimism that he portrays, he does make the point uh, that one must remember that the end of the Third World War, that is the Cold War, has brought anything but a lasting peace. And that is the greatest problem that remains for the current world powers. And I think we can all say amen to that, even though if we all remember back in the 1990s, there was that book saying the end of history and the fact that liberal democracy had prevailed and everybody else was finished. It hasn't turned out that way, of course. Uh, we can't afford to be naive about it. Because as they say in, in ancient Greek, pantarei, which means everything flows. And so it will continue. Indeed it will. Thank you, Peter. I look forward to our next discussion. So do I. Thank you very much, Jonathan. And goodbye to you. You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen. These podcasts are independently edited and produced. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the Moneymakers or Eminem podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.